that's not quite right. I just wonder at home, Melanie, did she draw straws with you? No. Melanie said, I'm not playing. You're playing tonight, Mom. I appreciated it. I'm, I'm sure we could ask Scott after church, but Pam literally is like the Swiss army knife of human beings. Like, I think I can do that. It was like a year and a half ago that she started saying, I think I, maybe a little bit longer. I can't remember. I'd like to learn how to play songs in church. And here she's playing songs in church. I'm like, all right, why not? Next thing, she'll be building websites and doing all kinds of stuff. So, all right. Take your Bibles tonight. Turn to Titus chapter number one. You can tell I did the graphics because they look like cartoons. But uh, the idea of the sermon series is how to do God's work. And... Timothy had two letters written to him about how to pastor, and Titus had one, but Titus's letter specifically is a letter about how you actually go about doing the work of the Lord, and in what fashion, what form, and all of those things uh, for us. Well, let's read a couple verses tonight, uh, if we can, and we'll jump into the Word of God. Beginning in verse number 5, we'll go through the whole chapter in a few moments, but in verse number 5, the Bible says this, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordering elders in every city, as I had opportunity, as I had appointed thee, excuse me. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Father, help us tonight as we turn our attention from the singing, which encourages us in doctrine, and the prayer, which, is in, which encourages one another in fellowship and burden-bearing. Now to the Word of God that will supply for our ever need. Tonight, Lord, as we begin this week and the next two Wednesday nights, to look at this little pastoral epistle to Titus, May we see how we are supposed to go about doing your work. This, on a Wednesday night, is the core of the church most predominantly. Those who are faithful, those who come, those who want their families to be involved. And so it usually will fall to this size of the congregation, this portion, to do your work in ministry. Help us to understand it this evening. Bless all that is said and done in this place, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus was most likely a Gentile from Macedonia. We can see that if we were to go to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 3. Paul was his spiritual father, and if he wasn't the one that led him directly to the Lord, he was at least, or at the very least, a discipler and mentor of Titus. We find that in verse number 4. He says, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. That's why I believe he was the one that led Titus to the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is Titus, according to Galatians chapter 2 in verse 1, who was with Paul in the city of Jerusalem. And while he was there, there were dogmatic religious 
Jews who were trying to drag them back into Judaism, who were insisting in Galatians 2 and verse 1 that Titus should be circumcised after the order of the Jewish religion. Chapter 2 and verses 3, 4, and 5 of Galatians, Paul would have none of it. He said, no, he's a Gentile. Why did Paul not allow Titus to become or, or to be circumcised? Because we know that in instances, Timothy was. Why did he not want Titus? Because Paul understood that by this point, there was going to be a very dangerous precedent set, and that was a two-tiered system within the church. It was going to confuse the gospel of grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. After Paul's later release from his first imprisonment in Rome, it is Titus who travels with Paul to do the missionary work. They landed at Crete and evangelized several towns. Look in verse number 5 where we began our reading this evening. For this cause left I thee in Crete. He says, you were with me in Crete, but I left you in Crete. I wanted you to stay there. Why? Because there was work that needed to be accomplished while I, Paul, accomplished other work as well. Boy, there's a great understanding that the work of the ministry is not just done through one man. It's a multitude of us in the work together. Paul was unable to stay with Titus, so he left him on the Isle of Crete. If you don't know where Crete is, it's at the very bottom of Greece and Macedonia. The Italian boot, I was going to put a map up for you, but I had some other things going on this afternoon. That was the only thing I was supposed to do today for my notes, and I forgot it. So please forgive me, but it's at the bottom of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, The Italian boot, as we know it to be, comes out from its heel across the Mediterranean, going towards Jerusalem. The Isle of Crete is right there on the bottom of the Greek peninsula as it comes down. It is in that area that he's left. This is the town. This is the region. And it is going to be unique, as we see even in chapter 1, what goes on in that church. Titus himself meets considerable opposition and insubordination in the church, especially from the zealous Jews. We see that if we were to continue reading in verse number 10. The Bible says, For there are many unruly, Vain talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, Paul says, in that isle of Crete. It is quite possible that Titus had written to Paul reporting on these problems and that this letter to Titus, to the pastor of that region or churches in those towns, this letter is the response and the spiritual advice from Almighty God through the Apostle Paul as to how they should do the work of God in these churches. So how do you do the work of God? How do we accomplish what God wants us to accomplish? Well, the answer is, in the three chapters of Titus, God's work is done with, first, godly leadership. That's tonight's message. Next week, we will see in chapter 2, it is done with gracious love. And in chapter 3, we're going to see it is done with good living. In other words, you can't do anything without good leadership. But good leadership that doesn't have gracious, loving people working alongside them and all of them living in a good or a benevolent way, a way that is God-honoring, it's not going to ever get done. But that's what this letter teaches us. It's godly leadership with gracious love and good living. So let's begin by studying godly leadership this evening, and that begins with 
first choosing good leaders. After Paul finishes his introduction in the first four verses of Titus, we find that he pivots to the element of leadership. The core of the church has to have somebody that's going to steer the ship. The head is Jesus Christ. But the hands on the wheel are those that Christ entrusts to lead that body. And it says that in verse number 5, he was to establish or ordain elders in every city. Why? Because they were wanting. There are things that need to be set in order. You need to establish these trusted leaders in each of these individual churches. Titus, that's your job. That's what I'm leaving to you. That's what I'm entrusting to you because that's what God has entrusted to me, Paul, the wise master builder, as he called himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's reason for leaving Titus was for Titus to establish leaders in varying churches on this island of Crete. Good leaders looked like Titus, we might say. In other words, Titus, when he gets this report, he also can find himself in what Paul is saying to look for. In other words, Paul is both encouraging Titus when he writes this, but also edifying him for how he should look for other good leaders. He said, hey, these things ought to be in you, but you also ought to look for them in other people. Those are the ones that will rise to leadership. That's what godly leadership looks like, Titus. Titus was looking to choose those who would take the churches in each town forward for the cause of Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, the word elder and bishop in verse number 5 and in the beginning of verse number 7 speak to both the person and function of the leader in the church. It does not speak of two different offices per se. One particular commentary says this of the idea of a bishop or the episkopos in verse number 7. He says, In the early church, the word episkopos had none of the connotations that our English word bishop has today. A bishop was simply an elder, according to Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. And a local church could have had as many elders as it needed. As time went on, however, the words bishop and episcopal gathered non-biblical traditions around themselves as a hierarchical structure rose within Christendom. Bishops, who supervised dioceses containing numerous churches, often acquired to themselves wealth, power, and influence until they themselves overshadowed and eventually ruled the declining Roman Empire. Our current concept of bishop, the commentator concludes, is derived from the Roman Catholic Church, which does not distinguish the church of God from the kingdom of God, and we should keep them clear. You say, why is that important? Because the role and function of the leadership of this church must be biblical. We believe here at Bluegrass there are two offices, that of the pastor bishop and that of the deacon, the diakonos as it's said in the Bible. So to choose good leaders, Paul gives to this man Titus a list. To choose good leaders in the church, Paul began by saying, letter A, watch their character. How do you know what a good leader looks like? And the answer for most people that are intelligent is, I'll know one when I see one. Isn't that true? Uh, There is natural leadership abilities, but there's also nurtured or learned leadership abilities. The Apostle Paul gives some pretty interesting 
character traits that ought to be watched in those who desire to be leaders. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that the character quality is that they are to be blameless. Now, notice the word blameless does not mean perfect. But it means that if and when they have harmed or done wrong to another, they follow the biblical steps to make it right and are always gracious and humble in that process. He says they are to be blameless. In fact, he says they're to be blameless at the beginning of verse 6, and he says they're to be blameless at the beginning of verse 7. You get the idea that being blameless is a pretty important function of being a leader, a godly leader within a church. To be blameless is to have impeccable integrity. Think of your own life, those that you've chosen to follow. And by the way, you're going to hear in this message tonight especially, I realize that my life and my ministry is very much on review. By the way, so was Titus's when he read this letter to the Cretes. When he, to the Cretans, he said to them, hey, listen, you need to understand what is going on here. This is what you should expect of me. And if you want to be in leadership, this is what is expected of you. This is what this letter is teaching, and it's telling us how to do the work of God. It means that people, not only their pastor, excuse me, it means that people not only know that their pastor is a man of his word, but that he is a man that is guided by God's word when it says he's blameless. Paul uses the word blameless twice, and each time there's an explanatory phrase which follows it. First, he says this, they are blameless in their marriage, in verse number 6. If any be blameless, comma, the husband of one wife. If I came into church and said, well, Jessica said it's okay for me to have four more wives. You should get up. And walk out and take Jessica with you. Rescue her from me. And yet there are faiths that waffle on whether that's a true fact or not. Now there's a lot of people that would like to discuss or debate or argue over, does that phrase mean a husband of one wife at a time? And if you read the original language, there's certainly latitude for such things. The point is not on whether that's right or wrong. The point is... That man must be at that time only married to one woman and be pure in it. It speaks to the blameless nature of their marriage. That they are pure one to another. Letter, or, or second, we find in, in the latter part of verse number 6, it is to be blameless having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. Can I tell you something? If you want to be a pastor, you better watch out. You know who has the worst end of the stick of me being a pastor? My kids. That's not me weeping, is it, Brother Graham? Brother Graham had five kids while he pastored. It's not fair, is it sometimes, Jolie, to grow up in a preacher's home? Is it, Brother Mike? And that's not a complaint, that's just a fact. I will say this. This passage is not saying the pastor's kids need to be perfect. But I will also add it means that the pastor's kids should not be picked on. And I'm glad that for 15 years that's never been the case in this church. I'm glad I don't have unruly and riotous kids. Now, they haven't grown yet. I've got two wild ones that are the younger ones. I think Drew will end up okay. 
I have successfully put the fear of God into him, it is a daily arm wrestle with the other two. They are product, Drew is a product of his mother, and the other two are products of their grandfather. <laughs> He's sitting back there innocent. No, they are products of their father, and I'm reminded of that often. We were joking with the boys the other day. You know, as you grow up, they, they haven't quite discovered. Drew's on the precipice of discovering girls, and Dad and I, Dad, not Dad and I, Dad and he have begun to have some of those talks. The other two don't know it. So we were talking about girls and girls in church, and oh, that's fun at home. It's fun. You guys do it at home and on your car as well, right? The only one we don't have to worry about, right, Stephanie, is Luke. We had Avery and Emerson at the house all afternoon with us. It was fantastic. It was fun. And Avery literally just sat at the island eating dinner with us. She goes, I'm marrying Luke. And Luke said, no, you're not. And I told them they were already married by the way they're acting. The Bible says that the pastor needs to be blameless. Listen, that's a tall task when it comes to your human relationships, because pastors wake up and have the same conversations that you do. They have financial burdens. They have successes. They have failures. They have emotional responses to things. I remember years ago, my pastor, Pastor Bud Calvert, said, I asked him, I said, are you going to watch the Skins play? That's back when we could call them the Redskins, but are you going to watch the Skins play in the Super Bowl? And he said, Kyle, I a long time ago quit watching the Redskins because I would come into church on a Sunday night and they will have played terrible and I would be only thinking of them. And I have yet to be able to divorce myself from cheering for the Bengals or the Wildcats. And it is hard to be blameless. And it's hard to have my kids not come to church and tell you some of the times I yell at the television. All right. The point is, is that it's not a perfect world and the pastor is not expected to be perfect. What he's telling Titus is, look, that man ought to be pure in his character. You ought to be able to watch and say, I have confidence in those that are leading. Can I also say this? These passages will be what guide us as a church when the day comes for me to stop doing this role. It will come. But even then, we'll know how to do God's work because we have a manual that tells us how to do it. It will tell us who we're supposed to look for to replace the old geezer when he's done. When God's time for him in that capacity is done. And it will come if the Lord tarries his return. They must be blameless in their marriage, blameless in his modeling. I put in my notes. You don't have to put that in your additional notes there. But as you watch their character, the third thing is in verse 7, they must be blameless in their ministry. He says in verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless. How? As the steward of God. I, am, I have the economy of God to take care of. I am to take care of what God has entrusted to me. May I say, as a pastor, part of that stewardship is each of your souls, if you're a member here. The Bible says that as a pastor, I watch out, I look out for your souls, and that I will give an answer to God for your life and your ministry. Not the success or failure in that for me, but that I sufficiently warned you of what is right and good that you ought to do, and what is wrong and wretched and what you ought to avoid. 
I will give an account to God for how I've interacted in your life. So sometimes through seasons of life, I might be the boogeyman, (laughs) the one you don't want to see coming. But I hope that I always fulfill my role in a blameless fashion to point you on to a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's how we do the work of God around here. It's what we're supposed to be about. As the steward of God, the pastor is responsible to God for handling the spiritual aspects of the local church, Paul is telling Titus. The church's leader must be blameless and not given in the verse that follows in verse 7. He cannot be given to aggression. He cannot be given to anger. He cannot be given to alcohol. He cannot be given to attacking individuals. And he cannot be given to avarice or greed and the lust of money. That's all that is covered in verse number 7. Oh, there's some people that fill pulpits that are aggressive souls. Well, I don't care what they think about me. I'm going to tell them what for. Boy, that is not the spirit of meekness that Paul would have had. It's always to encourage and build up in this most holy faith. That's the objective as a pastor. We all know pastors. We've all heard of church leaders. We are all aware of those who preach who have all of these Not just some of these. They are aggressive. They are angry. They are abusing the alcohol. They are attacking others, and they are very much greedy. They have a spirit of an avarice spirit. They want more for themselves, power, possessions, property or people, whatever it might be. God says godly leaders will have none of these in their lives. Not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. They will be blameless. You watch their character, but he goes on in verses 8 and 9 by saying godly leaders and how we find or know that godly leadership and choose that godly leadership is we witness their conduct. Verses 8 and 9. He moves in verse 8 away from the inner man to the outer man, but a lover of hospitality. Listen, I can't inwardly love hospitality and never show it outwardly. So, So he moves from what a character trait is. Inwardly, these things are true. I believe them in my own life that I want to be blameless in my marriage, blameless in modeling life to my children, blameless in my ministry to you. But those are all inward things. The next list in verse number 8 are all outward things, things that you can watch, their conduct. You can witness. We find in verse 8, you can witness that they, are to be, that they are servants. Who are they servants to? Well, first to strangers. Can I tell you something? When we planted bluegrass, everybody in this town was a stranger to us. I know Jason and I don't act like we're strangers to each other anymore, but there was a day where we were. If a pastor doesn't love strangers... That pastor is going to have a real short and very small ministry. The pastor needs to love everybody. And if the pastor loves everybody, then the people will start loving everybody as well. The word that is used for hospitality here is phylos xenos. It means a love of the stranger. The next thing he says, not just a lover of hospitality, but a lover of good men. So we're to be servants to the stranger, but then we're also to be servants to those who are solid within the church, solid men and women. The word there is philos gathos. It means a lover of goodness or a lover of good men or those of good character quality. The next thing he tells us is that we're to be 
servants to our Savior, a pastor is. He is to be sober, just, holy, and temperate. It's not just that I'm serving strangers and those solid believers within the church, but I'm serving my Savior as well. Sober means to be serious and to think critically with a sound, logical, biblical mind. To be just, the next word that is used, means that it gives the idea of being or doing that which is right often or all the time. The great concern of a bishop or an elder should be to do what is right as often as they can, and that should be every time. The pastor in his just nature must not jump to conclusions or act without considering all of the facts. He must look at both sides of an issue because the right course of action is not always obvious. And I can tell you for many an instance in my life of for 15 years pastoring, that is a very true statement that I just gave to you. The right course of action sometimes will say, I would do that. Okay, we'll consider all the facts and you will realize that probably isn't the right thing. In the original days of this church, in the early days, I had to make sure that I never went just with my gut. My gut is of the flesh, (laughs) and my gut is not always right. It doesn't mean that I can't trust my gut. It's just sometimes I eat spicy food. And by that, I jokingly mean metaphorically, I bring in the wrong information. It will give me a little holy heartburn as I make that choice. The principle here is to be just, equitable, looking at all factors that are at play. The next word that he gives to us in being a servant to our Savior is to be holy. An elder must be pure from evil conduct and must be observant of God's will. There's no place for even the slightest suspicion of scandal in his life. He must be holy as God is holy. I often will say this, this is another part of being a preacher's kid. I'm not trying to shy you guys away from being preachers if you're desiring to be that in here. But there are some things that your kids can't do when you're the pastor that all the other kids can do. And then you say to your kids, yeah, your dad chose to be a pastor. No, you don't say that to them. You say, listen, this is what's right. This is holy. We're going to choose this route. We have to hold an even tighter line on what is right and wrong so that as a family we send the right message to those that God has asked us to lead. I'm just being honest tonight if we're going to do God's work. That's what he's talking about in this passage. That's what you're looking for in a pastor. That's what you're going to sign up for if you say, I want to be one. He says they're also to be temperate. It means self-control. I'm often grieved when I find or hear of those in the pastorate who cannot control themselves. Whether it be in their appetite, in their anger, or their addictions. And there are some real battles that those before the pastorate or before God's led them into this place of godly leadership and they've been chosen first by God and then recognized and understood by man to be the pastor of a place, there are some real battles that people have gone through. And so I'm understanding of that. But a pastor has to be temperate. He has to be in control of himself. The next thing we find in verse 9 is that they are sure. The witness of their conduct is not only that they are servants, but that they are sure. In verse number 9, 
that pastor is to hold fast the faithful word as he hath been taught or as he has learned from God, from his mentors, from his teachers, from his counselors, as he has learned the word of God, that he may be able by sound doctrine or solid truth, we might say, both to exhort and to convince. That word convince could easily read convict. Convict who? The gainsayer, the one that speaks out against God. The pastor's job is to be able to lift up and exhort the believer to grow closer to God and to look out to the world and those that are tearing down God, tearing down his work, tearing down his people to say to them, I can convince you. I can convict you from the word of God. You are wrong and this book is right. The pastor then has to be a diligent student of the word of God. It does not mean someone about a month ago came and stopped by the church and they stopped into the the office. I can't even remember exactly who. I think I've got an idea who. But they came into the office and they said, huh, I thought you'd just be reading the Bible all day. Now, I'll tell you who it was. It was Brother Neil Deering. He knew I don't, I don't, that that's not what I do all day. But he was saying what jokingly most people think. He was coming, I think, to tell me about Cookie's surgery, when it was going to be, or something to that effect. And in the process, he was just stopping by. He said, all right. He goes, well, I thought I'd just find you back there reading your Bible all day. That's all you do, right? The answer is no, but I can tell you this. As one that loves the Bible, I would love to be that, that to be the only thing I do. It's a fantastic book. And every time I open it up, I find new things that I'd never even seen or considered before. I mean, I learned something just the other day about jumping Jehoshaphat, old king in Second Chronicles. Do you know what made Jehoshaphat great? This is free preaching here for you. The Bible says that Jehoshaphat wanted, when God asked him what he wanted, he wanted to see God. Man, that's fantastic. But do you know what happened? Jehoshaphat was a good king, but he didn't quite make it because the Bible says that Jehoshaphat did not remove the idols and the high places and the groves. You want to see God? Great, but you got to take those down. Here's the point. I love studying the Bible because I find stuff like that. I hope you enjoy studying the Bible as well. It says he holds fast the faithful word and that he's able to exhort and to convince or convict the gainsayer. God's work is accomplished with godly leadership, which begins with choosing or the choosing of godly leaders. Those leaders then must, number two, move to confronting the liars, we're going to see. Begin reading with me in verse number 10. The Bible says, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. One of them themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. By the way, we're going to look at this in a moment. That is a true statement from an a, a old Greek author, an old Cretan author. I think his name is, I think it's pronounced Epimenides, from 659 B.C. So Paul's actually quoting an old 600-year-old, 700-year-old statement about what kind of people live on the island of Crete. Here's the kind of people. They are Cretans who are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. You imagine serving in a church that was filled with people like that? That's what he says here. He says, this witness is true. He goes, I can say amen to that. That's what Paul says in verse number 13. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply. Oof, ouch. I thought he was going to say coddle them and tell them they're all going to be okay because Jesus loves them. Apparently they didn't have smoke and a band on stage. 
He says that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. These, by the way, are the gainsayers. (laughs) The gainsayers that we just mentioned, that's what they look like. These are what the gainsayers were. Understand, confrontation is not fun. I can tell you, I, I think I'm... I think I can be sure in this. I can tell you in all the times that I've ever had to confront, whether it's my children or whether it's folks within the church, there's never been a time where I've said, all right, man, I'm looking forward to the whooping. I'm going to lay down on this. Whoa, we get to go confront today. No, that's the wrong spirit. But I also can't shy away from it. If we're going to do good work here, if we're going to do God's work here, then the godly leadership that you choose is going to have to be willing to engage in the lives of the sheep. I was talking to someone not long ago, and I told them, I said, you know, I think the role of the pastor is to be a less dumb sheep than he was the day before so that he can lead people to be less dumb sheep in the day to follow. That really is the idea, less dumb sheep. That's ultimately what we are. And you say, well, that's not very flattering. I know I'm confronting you tonight. And I'm confronting me. He says, look, there are people that are coming in and telling you all kinds of lies. They're telling you all, things, all kinds of things that are wrong. And you cannot listen to them. You must confront the lies. The scenario Paul gives to Titus here is, however, a necessary confrontation. It's one of the least enjoyable elements of my calling as a pastor and any person who serves in leadership, whether it's a deacon or a staff member around here. But it is this concept of confronting, dealing with, and moving past the things that are not true and living in truth. It is one of the things that will make the work of God both pure and powerful. That's why he deals with it immediately after saying, once you've chosen the leader, you've got to go and confront the liar." you got to clean it up. Now, we don't have that in our church because we have folks that are walking with God. But as we grow, who knows what may happen? In fact, some of them grew up from within and some of them came in from without in these churches. So who knows how, when, or why it will happen or who it will be through, but we have to always guard against it. How do we confront the liars? Letter A, recognize them. Recognize them. Look, if you're not good at recognizing those who are lying, get good at it. I have had lunches with people before, and when I finished, I thought, man, that was a whole lot of talking. And I don't know if there was a shred of truth in it. Uh, Jessica will say sometimes to me, you know, you don't seem settled about that meeting. And I said, no. And I don't ever tell her what I've confronted, but the answer I give her is no, because there's something within you say, was it like a sixth sense? No, I think it's the Holy Spirit of God working on the leader or the godly leader here. And I can't act on it unless I have proof, but I will constantly pray that God reveals proof so I can confront the liar so that that individual can go back to living in truth. That's the goal. That's the objective. That's how God's work gets done. False teachers, by the way, who he's dealing with directly in this passage, refuse to recognize authority. Moses had to contend with unruly people. For instance, he was opposed by Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They rejected the leadership of Moses and the priesthood of Aaron. Korah was a first cousin of Moses. His family, 
he and his two rebel companions camped together on the south side of the tabernacle in Numbers chapter 2 and then again in chapter 3. But they seem to have collected a widespread following. Discontented people usually find the other malcontents and bring them along. Twice the Spirit of God records for us that these individuals were against Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 16. God's prescription through Paul's pen here to Titus is that the mouths of these unruly, empty-talking liars must be stopped. Why? Because if not, they will subvert whole houses, he says. I can tell you that in 15 years I've seen that happen, and I've even seen it happen within our church. In this instance for Titus, Paul says that they will be trying to seduce and destroy these people and, that the, and the church for their own personal gain, he says, for filthy lucre's sake. It's interesting, he just said the pastor, the godly leader, will not be pursuing filthy lucre. He says, here's how you can easily spot those liars that are not true leaders. They're only seeking their power, their prestige, their possessions, or, or an advancement of their own personhood. In verses 12, 13, and 14, he gives us in verse 1 how in confronting we respond to these that we identify as being liars. You have to know who they are and how they operate. Paul's quote here is, as I said earlier, likely from Epimenides in 659 B.C. It's a threefold response that we give, and Paul admits that this old philosopher nailed it when it came to the Cretans and what it needed to be for Titus to deal with. He says, first, they were always liars. That word always seems like it should have an S. It has the idea in all way. It's that it was their inherent nature. It was perpetual in them. Lying was like breathing to them. You ever met somebody like that, by the way? Stop it. Lying was a continual among the Cretans, and that is actually their right name. I've called them Cretans because Paul calls them that, but the modern way you say their name is Cretans. By the way, interestingly enough, when we say, man, that guy's a real Cretan, we actually are linking back to the kind of people these Cretans were. So the euphemism or the use of that word has roots in the Bible and in history. Though I don't remember the last time somebody's used the word Cretan except for right now. Lying was continual among them, Paul says. The Cretan addiction to lying even found its way into the Greek vocabulary, for the verb Paul used means literally to lie like a Cretan. <laughs> That's what it means. They, do alway, they are always liars. Man, you lie like a Cretan, is what they're saying. That's what the term means. Lying always, by the way, ends when it's confronted with what? truth. Jesus says the truth will make you free. Titus had truth, and what Paul is telling him is to, as a godly leader and choosing other godly leaders, they needed to be willing to confront lies with truth. That's the role to get works, God's work done. The second thing he says in this statement is they are evil beasts. The Cretans were described as pirates and those who preyed on shipwrecks being at the bottom of the Greek 
uh, peninsula and the archipelago that comes down, that island being right there, the tempestuous seas of the Mediterranean would often drive ships ashore. And instead of the Cretans going down and being kind to them, they would go down there and rob them and leave them to the wild. I mean, what a group of people, but that's who they were. And he says, they're evil beasts. They were a brutal and unreasonable people. And this is who Titus was left to pastor. Man, I am so glad for the church in Bluegrass. I mean, I don't want to pastor these jerks, do you? Well, somebody has to. Somebody needed to. And Titus was saying, here's how you, told by Paul, here's how you get the work done. Start with godly leadership. You get that right, you'll get everything else right. Everything else will work out for you. Grace, by the way, is the answer to this statement of the being evil beast. Grace softens the evil beast in every man, woman, boy, or girl. Salvation and the grace of God changes our true nature. Titus knew this and needed to teach this to them. The third statement he makes is that they are slow bellies. The word slow could equally be called idle. means they are lazy. Idleness is the devil's workshop, we're told. They are slow in their bellies. It speaks to an insatiable appetite, but an idle laziness that never wants to work to satisfy it. What is the response to that? Well, truth answers lying. Grace answers the fact that they were evil beasts, rude and reprobate. But here we find it's active love. It's the love of God that solves the idleness. If I agape him as he agaped me, if I sacrifice for him like he sacrificed for me, I'll never sit idly by and I will always be satisfied. What he's telling him here is, hey, Titus, you and I both know what kind of people they are. We both serve there together. I know what you've written in the letter to me, and this is my response to you. you got to deal with who you have. Leaders cannot run from problems. they got to confront them, work through them, and encourage everyone to make the right choices in them. That's the way a church is successful. Paul tells Titus to rebuke the false teachers sharply. Why? To destroy their lives? To ruin their reputation? No, we continue to read... It's so that they might hear and ultimately heed God's truth. Wherefore, verse 13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, that they might be whole and healthy or wholesome again. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turned from the truth. Godly leaders must confront those who would harm God's work. And finally, we see that Paul addresses the challenges that are in leading. Verses 15 and 16, there are some real challenges in leading. Here are the two that I find in these two verses. One is very, very short. The beginning of verse 15, I would say letter A, he says, the first challenge is invest in the pure. Unto the pure, all things are pure. The phrasing unto the pure means the ministry or work of the godly leader is unto the pure. That's why he's saying, unto the pure. He's saying, look, look, this is who they are. They, are, they need to be restored or made sound in the faith. They are Christians who are liars and beasts and of slow belly. But your job as the leader is to invest or find those that want the truth, that want grace and want love. He said, that's your job, that's your task. means the pure as the result of cleansing in the word pure. It's katharos. We get the word cathartic in it. To be pure is to be chaste, free from impurity, spotless, without blemish. 
In an ethical sense, katharos has to do with the being free from corrupt desires and the consequent guilt that comes with it. In other words, the maturing Christian, the one who is living on purpose by the word of God. And what he says is the first challenge for the pastor is to make sure he invests in those kind of people. Can I tell you something? When our church is 500 and those that have been here since day one never thought we would make it to 50 and we are regularly between in-service and online attenders now at 300. It's an amazing thing, following a goofy leader sometimes. I hope to be godly, but sometimes I'm just a flat goofy leader. I'm just being honest with you. It's my job to be blameless. Some of you are shaking your head like, Pastor, don't you dare say that. I appreciate that. But my job is to invest. I'm not going to be able to invest in everybody. So what does this teach us? It means that those that I invest in, in the teaching of the Word of God, in the training of the Word of God, I expect you to go out and invest in others as leaders too. It's the only way the church becomes sustainably regional, where we reach others. And then, by the way, we'll invest in groups so much that they'll go out and start their own church in regions beyond a comfortable drive to this place. That's what a church is supposed to do. We invest in the pure, but letter B, we isolate the professors. Now, I love the way that this worked out in God's timing in the illustration, or excuse me, in the alliteration of the outline. This is the only point I couldn't figure out the name, and then it just popped in my head. This is it. Mainly because I don't like professors themselves. But the point is, I meant academic professors. In this, I mean it in the sense of people who are professors in the name of Jesus Christ, but not true possessors of Jesus Christ as their Savior. He says in the end of verse number 15, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving. By the way, defiled means they are absolutely warped in their thinking. They are far gone. Unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. There's nothing wholesome in them. But even their mind and their conscience is warped, defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works. That's why this whole book is about works. Not works salvation, but the work we do for Almighty God. In their works, they deny Him. Nothing they do in their life says they're a Christian. Nothing they do in their life is right, righteous, or pure. They deny Him being abominable, disobedient, And unto every good work or the good thing that you should be doing in the church. These people are hangers on to the church that are actually detractors because they're not possessors, they're professors. Unto every good work, they're reprobate. They don't do anything right. That is not Paul saying to Titus, leave them behind. It's mark who they are and recognize they need Jesus. That is not me saying that on Sunday there might be people that come in that don't look like us or talk like us or act like this. We should act like us. We should always welcome anyone that walks in this place, no matter how they look, how they act, and how they talk. But the investment of the time is in the pure or developing those in this congregation who want to be wholesome. If there are people that come and don't want to be wholesome, then they would fall into the professor, not a possessor of Jesus Christ. And we need to isolate who those are. We need to identify them. John Phillips, and I must hasten along, John Phillips says this, These profess to know God, 
Speaking of verse number 16, in fact, however, they become so-called liberals who deny every cardinal or basic doctrine of the faith. Legalists who want to substitute Old Testament law for New Testament grace. Leftists who want to replace the saving gospel with a social gospel. Libertines who undermine the moral foundations of society by excusing wickedness and encouraging immorality. They profess to know God, but according to Matthew chapter 7, God does not know them. And we know a lot of people like that, especially in central Kentucky, who are Christian. And we recognize by their life and their language and their love for this world that they are nothing but lost. So what kind of leaders do we have here at Bluegrass? I will say this in closing. My life is always open for review, and it should be. A pastor that says, hey, leave me alone. Don't pick on me for that. That pastor is a little too sensitive for his own good. You should watch my character. That's what Paul's just said. A godly leader should have a character that is worthy of watching. You should witness my conduct. I am not putting myself on a pedestal tonight. Don't hear me say that. I'm simply saying to you, if this is how we get God's work done, you need to make sure you're in a church that has those kind of leaders. As your pastor, I have a high bar of responsibility to clear. It's been placed on me by God. As others who are in leadership and aspire to leadership, their lives too are open for review and consideration. I would remind you at this point of Jesus' words as he reminded those who wanted to stone the adulterous woman in John 8. Ye who are without sin cast the first stone. But if you ever find, but it is, I should say, fair to say, if you ever find yourself in a church, this one included, or any other one that you ever find yourself in your spiritual journey through this life, where there is a pastor who is not living to and fulfilling the standards of conduct and character lined out in this very passage in Titus, you should leave. Period. <gasps> well. This is the core group of the church. I don't think everybody's getting up and marching out. I think we're all in agreement on that. This is what God's standard is. This is what His expectations are. There are high standards because He's a holy God. God's work is done with godly leadership, in gracious love, with good living. Next week, we'll look at gracious love. You guys get to become the focus of the message next week. You don't have to pick on me anymore. Next week, there'll be five of you here. I'm kidding. You guys can laugh. I've gone long, so I've put you to sleep. I understand that. Let's pray, and we'll close for tonight. Father, thank you for this message. I pray that you'll bless it in our hearts.